been a lover of music. I was the obnoxious and annoying kid in the back seat of the car, uh, singing as loud as I could to whatever was playing on the radio. If I didn't know the words, I was humming or whistling, and my mom would be like, all right, Josh, that's enough. Uh, I was the kid who on Saturday mornings, I would, I would actually be in my room either playing with Legos or working a puzzle or playing with some other toys, and I would have Casey Kasem's Top 40 uh, playing on the radio and uh, listening to the newest music that was coming out and trying to, to sing along with that. And through the years, uh, growing up, I would jump from music genre to music genre. Sometimes that was what was pop rock, or then I would move to country music, sometimes into older stuff. Uh, but I did have a stint in high school where I got into alternative rock music, as a lot of kids my age did. Uh, it was the, the heyday of groups like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, uh, Nathan's back. I'm, are you nodding or headbanging? I'm headbanging. Okay, thank you. Just wanted to double check with you. Um, and, and I got pulled into that particular style of music. Other friends were listening to that. Uh, but one night, I was driving in my car, and uh, there had been a, a situation in my life, one of those teen drama moments, and uh, somebody had betrayed me, somebody I really didn't even know. And I was so angry with them about what they had done to me. And I was listening to music, and I had put in a CD, and these were the words that I began to sing and recognized immediately that I was singing these words, I was saying these words. Here they are. Hate is what I uh, feel for you, and I want you to know I want you dead. And some of you, your faces are like, what? You said what? You were singing what? And quite honestly, that was my reaction in that moment too. I was like, wait a second. What am I saying? What am I, what am I singing? That night, I actually I took that CD and I, I broke it. I disposed of it. And uh, over the course of time, I would go through others and, and dispose of those as well. As a follower of Jesus, wishing death and hate on somebody doesn't seem to mesh well with what we're called to be. But this week, while I was preparing this sermon, that song came to my mind. That, that instance came to my mind because I wasn't too far off back then from what David says in a few of the Psalms that we find. Uh, last week was titled Learning to Lament. I thought this week a fun title would be uh, Learning to Curse, um, something along those lines, because that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 109. I want you to see where David seems to be singing a curse on his enemy, hatred towards his enemy. Uh, Psalm 109. I, I reached out to Aaron earlier this week because he was doing music and told him, hey, this is, this is an imprecatory psalm, so if you've got anything that will match up. And he said he was working on a song called I Hate You. Uh, but I, that, that didn't come to fruition yet this week. And so, yeah, so maybe, maybe next week or something he can, he can present that to us. But Psalm 109. 
to the choir master, a psalm of David, be not silent, O God, of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. And they encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer. And so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand, and when he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruit of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. And may the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, so let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. And may it be like a garment that he wraps around himself, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O oh God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God, save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. And let them curse, but you will bless. They will arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. So the obvious question that we'll answer today is, how do we reconcile what David writes, what he what he sings, what we recognize to be spirit-inspired scripture that has been preserved for us in the Word of God. 
How do we reconcile that with our call to love our enemies? To do good to those who would mistreat us. And for that we need the Spirit's help. And so pray with me as we begin. Father, we do ask you for help today. I ask you for help to clearly communicate the truth that we find in your word. And your truth is always beautiful and glorious. May that be our understanding today. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who are lamenting. Lord, those who are here today who have had a, a difficult week, they have been enduring suffering and sorrow and pain, maybe some of them at the hand of an enemy, at the hand of someone who has risen against them. God, I pray that we would find comfort today in these words, that we would find comfort today in your faithfulness toward us. We pray your blessing on our time as we consider this psalm together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of all the psalms that I've selected this summer, Psalm 109 is the longest. And so we do not have time today to unpack like I typically like to unpack the details of each verse and working through. And so I would encourage you, uh, Psalm 13, which we looked at last week, is a bit of a template uh, for a lament psalm. And so if you weren't able to be here, go back and listen to that so that you can understand uh, some of the nature of what a lament psalm looks like. It will be of great help to you. But let's begin today by considering uh, the opening David's circumstances that really formulate this particular psalm for us. In the opening line, David pleads for God to not ignore him. Again, very similar to last week. He says, be not silent. David feels as if God has left him alone, abandoned him, as if, as if God is somehow indifferent to his circumstances. And so he pleads that God once again would speak. So what's the situation? Well, he goes on to describe that wicked and evil, deceitful men have risen up against him. Uh, he is being falsely accused. He is being slandered. He is being maligned by others. His accuser's words are hateful, he says. They're without cause. Worse still is David has been nothing but kind and good toward those who accuse him and are injuring him. The, the goodness that he's shown to these people, the kindness that he's shown to these people is being rewarded with hatred. It's being rewarded with evil. Now that may be relatable to you. It probably is relatable to all of us. We've all been falsely accused of something in our past, something that we didn't do, but they said we did it. Maybe your name has been slandered. Others have tried to drag it through the mud. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you thought was a friend, someone you thought would be loyal to you to the end, but then there's a knife in your back. And you wonder, how could they do that to me? Has your kindness ever been rewarded with evil? As we mentioned last week, relating to, to Psalm 13, uh, David had several instances in his own life where this could be applied. It, it could be the time when Saul, the king that he loved, the king that he faithfully served, started trying to kill him. He, he had been nothing but kind, but Saul thought he was uh, out to get the throne and take the throne and seize the throne. He wasn't, but Saul tried to kill him and chased him through the wilderness. Maybe it was the time his own son Absalom rose against him. 
But there's another story that's intermixed with that story of Absalom that I think fits maybe even a little better. Some other commentators had pointed in that direction. It's the story of, of Shimei, Shimei, I don't know how to say his name. I'm just going to say Shimei because that makes me think of dancing or something like that. So uh, Shimei, Shimei was a servant of Saul. Uh, you can read about this if you want in 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 14. And when David was on his way out of the city of Jerusalem, Absalom had seized the throne. David, surrounded by his mighty men, those faithful to him, uh, Shimei came out of his house and started throwing rocks at David. Started pronouncing curses on David and said, you're cursed by God because you killed Saul. False accusations. David didn't kill Saul. David went out his way to protect Saul, to preserve Saul and his kingdom. But these false accusations were being made and David was being cursed by Shimei as he was leaving the city. David's mighty men say, hey, can I just take care of this bozo? David says, no. He said, no. The Lord may be cursing me. This may be the Lord's doing. And when David reassumed his throne after Absalom was overthrown and killed, Shimei came back to David somewhat apologetic, and David forgave him. David did not take vengeance upon him. Now, when, when Solomon came into power, David said, you may want to take care of this guy. You can question his uh, character in that all you want, uh, but David did give Solomon a bit of a hit list of people that might be a troublemaker to him, and uh, there were several of those names. Shimei was one of those names. Uh, listen, I, as I thought of this, I, I thought of a couple of different instances. As a pastor, I thought of one particular situation. Before, before I became the pastor here, me and Faith worked with the youth. And there was one particular family that we, we poured our lives into these young, young people. And uh, not, not just the normal that we would do, but I remember spending all sorts of time in, in a McDonald's or a Taco Bell and just helping them navigate through different circumstances that they were going through in their life. And then becoming the pastor and uh, pastoring the whole family and sitting in their home and trying to help them as they navigated through difficult circumstances in life. Uh, but a couple years into the ministry, after a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, I can't remember which, the dad said, hey, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, let's go in my office. And I stood there for over an hour while he berated me for my failures as a pastor how I'd failed his kids, how I'd failed his family. And to be quite honest, I am certain that many of the things he said were true. I was a very young pastor. But many of them were not. They were false accusations. They were slanderous things that he didn't just leave in that office, but took and spread to other people. And were really indefensible in some of those moments. You've had family members accuse you of cheating them. You've had coworkers or maybe employees falsely accuse you of doing things that you didn't do. You've had friends slander you behind your back. Some of you have felt the pain of the nasty divorce, custody battles, where people that you thought were on your side turn on you, maybe even in a courtroom in front of a judge after holding their hand on a Bible. You thought this... This would never happen. Some of you have had the, the, the good work of sharing Jesus with people, the hope of Christ with people, turned on you and they slam a door in your face. And they slander you for what you believe and what you're practicing. 
you're met with hatred, you're met with anger. We all, to some degree, know the sting of betrayal that David is writing about in these verses. We feel the weight of what he is experiencing. It's painful. You feel weak. You're unable to defend yourself. When, when this happens, what do we want? Hey, we want justice. I want to be vindicated. I want someone to say, that's not true. What about this? And I want that argument to be made. And so does David. And so consider with me for a moment what comes next. David prays that God would turn their evil back on them. Psalm 109 and several other psalms are what we call imprecatory psalms. To to imprecate uh, someone is to curse. That's the, the connection that we make. And so these imprecatory psalms are curses. And so in verse 6, as you might have noted as we read through, things get pretty dark. David actually petitions the Lord that an adversary, a wicked man, a wicked man would rise up against this one who's spoken evil of him and accuse him and it would go to court and he would be found guilty in court. It's interesting that David says that a wicked man would rise up against him. It would be one thing if a righteous man rose up against him, but even a wicked man to rise up against this evil person and them still be found guilty. What shame that would bring on their head. His next request is that their days would be few. Leaving his wife a widow, his children fatherless, beggars. Let's let's reread those verses. Verse 8 says, May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. One of the reasons I wanted to reread that is because, man, that's hard to read. Doesn't quite sound like you're reading something from Scripture, yet there it is. The second reason I want to read through it is because the apostles actually pull this psalm into the pages of the New Testament meaning they validate what David says here. In Acts chapter 1, as they're having to replace Judas, they quote Psalm 109. They quote, I believe it's Psalm 69 or 65, another imprecatory psalm. You may notice that line, let another take his office, as they would replace Judas with Matthias, validating the imprecatory psalm of David As for the desire to see the wife and the children living in poverty, in ruins, I think it's interesting the wording there. They have to travel far from their ruins. That's what they live in, a life that's destroyed to even find their daily sustenance and their food. That would be a great shame. A greater shame than this wicked man's death is that his wife and children would live in poverty behind him. That's the culture we're talking about. Next, David requests that creditors and strangers would take all of his stuff. Let somebody come in and take all of his things, leaving him and his family with nothing. And then that that there would be no one that would show any kindness or pity to them. No no nonprofit organizations would reach out. No government subsidies would come in to help 
support this particular family. No one to take pity. In this way, this wicked man will feel what he has inflicted on the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He will experience in his own life and in his own family the pain that he's caused in the families of others. In verse 13, David prays that his posterity would be cut off, his family name forgotten. Uh, Hebrew scholar Ross, Alan Ross, suggests that the thinking here may be that the, the evil, the wicked do, would continue from generation to generation unless God would intervene. Very similar to what we find in the, the pages of Joshua and Judges and the Conquest. Just wipe them out. Erase their name from the earth so that that generational sin would cease. And in the final petition, verse 14 and 15, David asks that Yahweh would would not forget, understand what he says here, Yahweh, don't forget, do not blot out his sin. May his sin be ever in front of you so that you and the world will remember the great wickedness that he's done. So there you go. That's the guts of an imprecatory psalm. Wishing judgment, pain, and to curse another. But David actually isn't done. In the next few verses, he provides some reasoning for this bold set of requests that he's offered. Verse 16 through 20, David reminds Yahweh that this man did not show kindness. He had opportunity to show kindness, but instead he pursued the poor, the needy, and the brokenhearted and put them to death. He's reminding Yahweh of how wicked this person was. And then in verse 17 through 19, these are very interesting verses, uh, very picturesque for us. He describes the wicked one who, who loves to curse other people, even describes him as, as wearing a coat, like his coat is his cursing of other people. It just represents, and he says, may that coat like liquefy and just absorb into his body so that he absorbs all of the curses that he's ever offered to anyone else. May he be cursed. He wishes that his life would be that of a curse. And then in verse 20, concluding this particular section, David once again asks that these requests that he's offered Yahweh would be rewarded. <laughs> Answer it. Proving again the sincerity of what he wants to see accomplished in this person's life by the hand of Yahweh. And then just like that, we find ourselves with that transition word, but. <laughs> Curse them, answer my request, but you, O oh God, my Lord. What follows is a sincere, a humble plea for help. We, we see David once again pleading for Yahweh's help, his rescue based upon that word, steadfast love, chesed. Uh, the faithfulness, the loving kindness of God. And he uses it in 21. He'll use it again in verse 26 as he pleads for help based upon the faithfulness of Yahweh. In these verses, David rehearses his need for the Lord to intervene. Again, very similar to Psalm 13. He's desperate. God, if you don't intervene, I'm done. My life is over. You're all I have, so please listen to me. Don't be silent. Answer my request. 
Then again in verse 26, repeating the refrain of dependence, help me, O Yahweh, my God, save me according to your chesed. Verse 27 provides us with a helpful clue to better understand such a controversial psalm. Check, check out what he writes. He says, let them know that this is your hand. Let them know that this is your hand. You, Yahweh, have done it. David wants it to be clear that it was Yahweh who took vengeance. That it was Yahweh who acted in judgment, who punished their wickedness. David may be praying for vengeance, but he himself is not taking up the mantle to enact vengeance he is asking Yahweh to be the one to take vengeance. In the final verses, starting in 28, David places his hope in the promise that Yahweh will establish justice. That justice will come when the wicked curse, I like this, when the wicked curse me, God, you bless. What does that remind you of? The story in Numbers, children of Israel, trying to make their way to the promised land. And Balak, he doesn't like them very much. And so he hires this prophet Balaam to, to curse them. And every time Balaam opens his mouth to speak a curse on Israel, a blessing comes out. And Balak's getting madder and madder. I can just see him time and time again. David says, hey, I want that to happen to me. When they curse, you bless. David's hope is that he'll give thanks and praise to Yahweh. Again, it ends with this, this rejoicing, this singing, that he'll give praise to Yahweh for he is the one who will right the wrongs. He is the one who will bring judgment to the wicked. After all, it's Yahweh, and I, I love, love, love this concluding statement. It's Yahweh who stands at the right hand of the needy to deliver them from those who threaten their life. You may be that needy person today. It's Yahweh who stands at your right hand. You are not alone in your struggle. You are not alone in the betrayal that others may bring about in your life. He stands at the right hand of the needy. What incredible hope. So there are certain passages in the Bible that make us cringe. I mentioned last week, there's some nasty passages in Joshua and Judges. Um, we went through that a couple of years ago, and we, we called them that. We called them the nasties. Uh, because... The idea of Joshua and Israel being commanded to basically commit genocide against entire clans of people doesn't settle well with us. It's nasty. The truth is, if we could surgically remove verses 6 through 20 from Psalm 109, it wouldn't creep us out so much. <laughs> it wouldn't bother us so much because it's, it's that chunk, it's that section that is troublesome to us. But there they are, so how do, we, how do we deal with them? How do we understand a psalm of impression? 
First, I want to mention this. Uh, I appreciated this word that came from, again, Alan Ross. He's a Hebrew scholar, one that I've I've leaned heavily on, especially in the Psalms. Uh, He recognizes that in the Psalms, there's different classifications. Some of these Psalms were meant for public worship in particular festivals. We know that there's a whole section that they would call the Pilgrim Psalms, the Psalms of Halil that they would sing as they were making their way to Jerusalem. And he also says, though, some of the Psalms are meant for private lament private prayer. He says he believes this is one of those psalms. This isn't one that you gather together and sing as a group of people. This is one you wrestle with in private as you struggle with what circumstances have entered into your life. That's one point I want to make. Second point I want to make is this. Every follower of Jesus should long for God to avenge the wrongs and the evils that have been committed. Every follower of Jesus. All to hate what is evil. We're called to cling to, to love what is good and what is right. Sin should make us uncomfortable. We know that, right? It, it should make us feel something is off. Sin and evil should be avoided, but our problem is that we get comfortable with it. I get comfortable with my sin. Uh, we, we grow desensitized uh, to sin because of what we experience in our culture and in society at large around us. Uh, we justify our sin, and therefore we move into justifying the sins of other people. It's easy for us to do. The point and struggle, this point and struggle marks the importance of what we sang about and Aaron emphasized. He didn't know we were going here, but the holiness of God. It's such a key character trait of God for us to understand that He is holy, He is distinct in His perfection. So much so that it's repeated three times in the scriptures. We've gone over that. To say something three times is significant. And he is holy, holy, holy. God can't look upon evil. He hates it because it violates his very character. Everything he is to the core of who he is, it violates it. But you know there's another reason he hates it. It's because of what it does to the people that he loves. Sin destroys us. And he hates it. That's what makes the cross so significant. If you want to know the level of God's hatred for sin, you go to the cross. Because the father there turns his back on his own son because he bears your sin and he bears my sin. That's the extent of his hatred for sin. Not only does the cross reveal his holiness though, but think about it from the opposite standpoint. It also reveals his incredible love (laughs) that Jesus would endure the bearing of your sin and my sin. There's no better place to go to understand the nature of God than the cross. Vivid color 
we experience his character and his nature. And we too are called to holiness. This isn't just a character trait that we say, well, God's holy, good for him. No, be ye holy for I am holy. We're called to holiness as well. We're called to hate what is evil, to hate the sin that presents itself in our own lives, our, our own lust, our own pride, our own anger, our own rebellion. We're called to hate it. And in Psalm, in this particular Psalm, David does just that. He hates what is evil and he pleads that a righteous and a holy God, Yahweh, would do something about it. Stop this. Put a stop to the evil. When you hear a story about a child being abused, which seems to be more and more frequent. Maybe one of those stories about how parents were trafficking their own kids to family, to strangers. Verses 6 through 20 make more sense, don't they? When you read about Bernie Madoff, some of you remember that name. He's the guy who stole the life savings of hundreds and thousands of people. Born out of greed. People that had worked their entire lives. I don't know if you remember some of those stories. You have a 75-year-old man who was a greeter at Walmart. He'd worked his entire life and everything else was stolen from him. So here he is back having to make ends meet for him and his wife. Psalm 109 makes a little more sense when we think about it that way. It's evil. Over the past week, we recognize the one-year anniversary of when our own community citizen, Officer Mark Preby, by the wickedness and evil of one individual, lost his ability to walk, changed his life, changed his family forever. It's evil. For the past few years, I've, I've been reading more and trying to, to learn more about slavery in our own country, Jim Crow laws, other laws in recent years that have been presented to stand in the way to oppress, laws that protect powerful, laws that oppress those in poverty. I grew up in a relatively racist community. <laughs> I'm not ignorant on this. Some of you have the exact same experience that I've had. I grew up an hour south of Tulsa, not even an hour. Went to public school my entire life. Took Oklahoma history classes multiple times throughout all of those years. And never once until two years ago heard about the Tulsa massacre. Or I, don't, I don't care if you want to say there were you know, 17 people killed or 300. I know that number varies because it was completely covered up. That makes me mad. Why didn't I hear about that? Why didn't anybody teach me that? Well, I know why. I know I was covered up. What about the stories of prisoners? Oh, these get to me. 
Guys that have served 50 years of a life sentence, somebody made an accusation against them, evidence was fabricated, and now 50 years later, DNA evidence comes out, they weren't anywhere near that. Their entire life taken from them. Oh, that gets me. That gets me. When you watch videos of radical Islamists beheading Christians who have been nothing but kind and good and generous towards their, their enemies, don't you want justice? In fact, John had a vision. We call it Revelation. And, and in Revelation 6, here's what it says. When he, that is Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? An imprecatory prayer. How long? Psalm 109 in its entirety makes sense for those who know and understand the holiness of God and who long to see justice accomplished. But despite our desire for justice and vengeance upon the wicked, it's vital to note that the psalmist, David, never works to avenge himself. I'm thankful we have the entire story of David and so much about him because it does help us to put these in place. Rather, he pleads and he petitions that Yahweh would provide vengeance and justice. In fact, in all three of those, those instances in David's life that we've brought out, David never acted in vengeance. Never once did he act towards Saul. The one time in the cave, he cut, he cut the, the hem of Saul's uh, robe. And how did he feel about it? Oh, he was crushed. All he did was like get some scissors and chop it off and be like, hey, could have killed you. He felt terrible. It ate him up. He never acted against Absalom. In fact, when Absalom did die, he was broken, more broken than we, we, we see David in any other circumstance. And we've already talked about Shimei. In fact, the scriptures are very clear. Old Testament I want you to understand that Old Testament and New Testament alike, that we are never called to avenge ourselves, but rather we are called to love. It's not just something Jesus comes on the scene and, well, I'm going to change the story, going to change the narrative. No, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from the law. In Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, but I say to you here, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Peter, who knew the sting of persecution, would write this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
for to this you were called. Turn with me if you would to Romans chapter 12. I want to look with you at a lengthy section here from Paul. I'm going to start at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or prideful, but associate yourself with the lowly, the humble. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That should be the goal. But notice verse 19, 2021. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, he's quoting again from Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I like it when he says, but on the contrary. Because it, it would be one thing for, for me and you to say, all right, I won't avenge. I'll just leave that to God but I'm not going to like that person. <laughs> they're dead to me. What does he say? On the contrary. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. When they're hungry, give them some food. He calls us to go out of our way to show love to them, to overcome their evil with good. So they, they give you about five points of evil, however you would measure that, you give them 10 points of good. <laughs> Overcome them. Mm. In this, we're called to follow the example of Jesus. Right? He is our example in this. To cultivate the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and to share that with even our enemies. So... How will you love your enemies this week? Who's hungry that needs a bite to eat? Who's thirsty that needs a drink? How will you show them the love of Christ? How will you overcome their evil with good? And don't, don't think that's a good that you can concoct on your own. That's a good that only comes from the supernatural work of Jesus' spirit working through us. Because you're not good enough <laughs> to pull that off. And you're not kind enough to pull that off. You need his spirit working through you to be able to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Last point. 
Bottom line, said we would get here. Is it permissible for us to pray what David prays in verses 6 through 20? And you're going to love my political answer. Yes and no. I told Faith earlier this week, I think I'm avoiding heresy with my conclusion. We'll see. It is okay to pray an imprecatory prayer in the same way that it's okay to complain to God in Psalm 13. We understand in the, in the grand scheme of things to complain to God is the opposite of what we're called to do and be, right? I mean, we're called to thankfulness and to gratitude. Do we really have anything to complain to Him about? No, we, we understand that. But complaining as we see in Psalm 13, is a means of moving us to God, right? That's what that psalm was about. It's, it's movement. That complaint comes with a direction. We're, we're moving closer to God. And the same would be true here in this psalm of impression. It moves us towards God and away from self. It moves me towards a God who will enact vengeance, who will establish what is just and right, and away from myself who longs to enact that vengeance personally. <laughs> if your prayer of imprection is leading you away from personal vengeance and revenge to trust the hesed of Yahweh, then I say pray away. Make sure it's directional. Make sure you're following the guidelines that we see even within David. I would also add that it's okay to pray an imprecatory prayer when our hearts, like those of the saints in Revelation, are longing for the kingdom of heaven to be established. They're longing for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one true just judge to return to set things right. When our hearts are motivated by that particular longing, for justice. It's good to ask that God would bring that justice. When we hear those stories on the news, it's okay to pray a prayer, God, bring justice to this evil. Let righteousness prevail in your creation. But I would also answer no. Because we must realize that our greater call, especially this side of the cross, and understanding the teachings of Jesus, the life, the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, is to love our enemies. To not mimic David, but Jesus who prayed blessings on his enemies. To mimic Jesus who is, who is presently staying his return, right? His, his next return is not going to be a humble baby. It's going to be on a horse. Out of his mouth will proceed a sword. And it will be judgment. And Peter tells us that he's staying his return because he's not willing that any would perish. But that all would come to Repentance. That's the kind of patience we're called to show towards those who would 
treat us poorly. Those who would stab us in the back. That kind of patient love. My friends, I realize this answer leaves us with tension and that may not satisfy you, but as I've said to you many times over and over, there's always tension when we, a finite people, are trying to understand an infinite God. There's always tension when we who live in a broken and a fallen world are trying to understand a holy God of perfection. We've got to get comfortable with it. And so in your pain, in your suffering, that may be brought about by wicked people doing evil things, Pray for justice. Trust that Yahweh will bring about that justice and love your enemies. This is what we're left with. Would you bow with me? Your prayer this morning may be imprecatory. I don't know how others have mistreated and abused you. You may wish harm upon them. You may wish God's judgment upon them. And I understand that. Psalms give us such a true picture of the raw reality of life and the pain and the suffering that we endure. So this morning, in this time, make your request to God. Make your request that righteousness would prevail, that He would do away with the wicked. But also make your request that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, you would be able to love beyond your ability to love. You would be able to show grace beyond your ability to show grace, supernaturally overcome. That evil with good. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to let you take some time to pray before I close us out. Father, we are grateful that in our times of need, our times of brokenheartedness, amidst our pain, you stand at our right hand. Though the whole world may not notice what somebody else has done to us and the pain that they've caused us, it doesn't escape your eyes. You see it. You hear our prayer. You will bring judgment. Righteousness will prevail. God, we long for that day. I am so tired. Of watching people destroy other people.
God, I know you're tired of it. Yet you are so patient. And you're so good that even amidst all of the pain, you, you have a way of working it into good. And so God, we, we rejoice in that and we trust you in that and we trust your time, your timing. We trust your plans. And in the meantime, God, help us to love one another. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to do good to those who would despitefully use us. Help us to not meet the reviling with more reviling. They're threatening with more threatening, but to, like Jesus, entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. God, help us to be an army of people who love. I pray that you would bring healing to the pain that many in this room are experiencing. That you would help us to truly learn to lament as a means of bringing about that healing. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. We pray, asking these things in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.